Welcome to America now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never it's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Bad day for free speech, my friends. Buck Sexton here with you all now. Uh, looks like the Berkeley speech that uh, Ann Coulter... Uh, guest on this show, somebody who is well-known to all conservatives and to uh, many on the other side for, for different reasons. Um, but uh doesn't look like there's going to be a Berkeley speech. I want to talk to you about that. I think that's the first place we should uh, focus our attention today, although there's a lot going on. we got uh, the tax plan, the biggest tax cut in history, they are saying. That just came out today. We'll give you the details, the so what, the uh, gauging of expectations, everything else you need to know with that. As I like to say, you you give me your time on this show and you'll not only hear a unique perspective and you'll know more, especially about uh, national security, than you will from listening to a whole bunch of other shows uh, because I actually have a real background in it. Uh, But I want to make sure you know everything that's happened today, but also have different ways of looking at it and give you a different perspective on it. Uh, We're going to talk about North Korea. We're going to talk about uh, what's happening with ESPN, I think, later. We'll even get into some Bill Nye, the science guy discussion. I've got a lot planned for this show. Um, But first and foremost, I want to talk to you about free speech. You see, the left wants to pretend this isn't such a big deal. It's just one speech. That's what they're saying. I even saw... I think it was uh, Chris Hayes over at MSNBC on on Twitter, which is, I'm finding, this is how journalists talk to other journalists. They just write stuff on Twitter and go back and forth. But he's someone who is, I, I will say, because I'm honest, I'm honest about people here. I don't know Mr. Hayes, never met him, uh, had no contact with him, but has the reputation for actually being a, a, pretty, a pretty decent and a nice guy from conservatives I know who have interacted with him. And that matters to me. Um, I I find political disagreements to be just that. Other people in this business always seem to want to turn this into a food fight and destroy the other person. It's about destroy. We have to destroy. And and this is, as many have written on this in in recent years as well, the the ploy, uh, this is the artifice, the technique you see with so many of these commentary shows, uh, Jon Stewart perhaps most famously, but now Stephen Colbert continues with it. Uh, It's always about destroy, and the different outlets on the left, you know, HuffPost and Mike.com, everyone's always getting destroyed, you know, on the right. Destroy the right. Um, But but Hayes seemed to be legitimately perplexed. Why does the right think this is such a big deal? And that's the question I wanted to address with you first, because on a day when the administration's put out a massive tax plan, which, of course, I will get into, and you know, taxes get me fired up. I mean, a lot of people go to the well 
on other issues, right? Especially to try to get attention for themselves or to get readers or listeners or viewers. Uh, one of the classics is just, when in doubt, bash Obama. I've noticed that. When someone doesn't really know where they come down on a Trump issue or when when they don't want to alienate a conservative audience, uh, just, just bash Obama. It's always about bash Obama first and then say whatever you want to say about the issue. But at least you've let everybody know that you know Obama did bad things. Yeah, Obama did do bad things, but I don't like to waste your time by artificially spending our time on how, well, it, oh, Obama was so bad on this issue or that issue. Um, and on, on taxes, maybe it'll be some of that, but um, let's get back into free speech here for a moment, because this is a fundamental freedom. This is a first principle of our republic. This is an essential fight for us to have, um, and it's one that we can't afford to lose, because if you surrender this freedom, you begin to surrender all freedoms. If you allow free speech to be eroded and to be dictated by the uh, by the other side or by others then it no then it ceases to exist y- your uh your freedoms are not what they should be not what is endowed by your creator by our creator um it's what the powers that be allow you to have there's a reason why you know the the first amendment to the constitution deals with this uh, this was not something that was going to get left off the list. And uh, as I said, Chris Hayes, why is it such a big deal? Well, there's a few ways to answer it. For On the one hand, it's not a one-off. The Coulter-Berkeley situation is not the first time this has happened. In fact, we've talked about other instances on this show. Heather McDonald at Middlebury, uh, or uh, sorry, Heather McDonald at uh, a couple of schools in California, um, at Claremont McKenna being one of them. And then Charles Murray at Middlebury, who was attacked, and the professor alongside him was attacked. And I seem to be among the first that I at least know of in media who picked up on the Middlebury political science professor who was apologizing for even the thought of bringing Charles Murray onto campus. Charles Murray, a never-Trumper, married to an Asian-American woman, a scholar at the a- at AEI, but he's a, a racist. I-, I asked a writer for a major website uh recently i wrote to him i said i'm pretty sure you referred to him as a eugenicist and then changed your article and i never got a response to it but it was i literally refreshed the page and the word was gone and i didn't screenshot it but that's out there that's the kind of stuff that they do when conservatives go on campus Uh, the southern poverty law center said that charles murray is a uh, white supremacist. Southern Poverty Law Center has just debased itself i mean i I don't know how anyone takes it seriously at all it's a left-wing progressive hit group pretending to be a hate group or anti-hate group. Um, but I digress. So this is a broader problem than just one speech. And it's not a new problem either. I've mentioned to you here on the show, my college thesis under the uh, the formidable and wonderful Professor Hadley Arkies of Amherst College was on campus speech codes. I saw all of this coming then. That was back in 2004. This is not new, but it's gotten worse. It used to be they were hoping to bend the administration to their will with argument. Now they seek to and are successful in bending college administrations to their will, to their whims, in fact, under threat of force. That's an additional layer here. It's the next step. It's what it's what makes this current moment so important, and it shows us just how precarious our fundamental freedoms in this country truly are. Without speech... Your other freedoms, it's just a question of when they disappear. 
It's not a question of if. And you will see that in any totalitarian or authoritarian system, the freedom they seek to control most is speech. Because once they have that, then they can dictate everything else, right? A, a dictatorship cannot really exist, whether it's a dictatorship of the proletariat, as was promised but never realized in the Soviet Union, or a dictatorship of the strongman variety. They're always seeking to tell you what you can and cannot say. Um, this is not just a function of the campuses, because while... There will be many in the media who, and I give some on the left credit for stepping outside of party lines here and recognizing this is a problem of the progressive left. This does not exist among conservatives, among even, find me the most right-wing reactionary groups in the eyes of the left. If they're in any fashion mainstream or have any credibility, they would never do this. They don't do this. Um, and this is also what led me to have a bit of a terse exchange with a guest on this show who wanted to tell me, well, conservatives would do this too if they could. No, that's false. It's false because it is contradictory to the very basic ideals of conservatism. We are all about freedom. I know it becomes a catchword, and I know that if you watch certain programs on different channels or you, you look at some conservative commentary it, it, it's it's very flag-heavy, and the go-to word is freedom, and some people just use it because I think they think it sounds good. They don't spend too much time on, what does that even mean? Why does freedom matter so much to all of us? At a philosophical level, why does free speech really matter? It's not just about a political fight, right? This isn't only an opportunity, although it is a fun one, to point at progressives and say, see, they are petty snowflakes. See, they are incapable of making arguments to defeat the other side. See, they don't really want to exist in the real world unless they can create a world that they entirely control, which is not the real world. Um, it also is a question of why do we believe that we should be able to make arguments, even arguments that I don't agree with or arguments that I find offensive, deeply flawed, wrong, immoral, if you believe in free speech, you believe that people should be allowed to make immoral arguments. Well, if you don't think that that is the case, all you are then doing is transferring power into the hands of people that you will never be able to get back, by the way. Once you allow the other side to tell you what you can and cannot say, good luck making the argument that they're not doing a good job of it. Once somebody else gets to determine the parameters of, of what is acceptable in the realm of ideas, how, how can we even begin to think that there, are, that there is real freedom in our, in our society, in our country? This is why in the past we've seen major struggles over jihadism and free speech, because that's one of the most pernicious and most dangerous things about radical Islam. It seeks to force even non-believers, unbelievers, people outside the Islamic faith to, res to respect and, in fact, obey. It's not about respect. To obey under threat of force their dictates about what is an acceptable idea, what is acceptable for speech about the prophet, about Islam, about any number of issues. And I think it is to the great shame of many major media organizations, for example, that they would not publish the Muhammad cartoons, that they backed off on that issue. And the progressive left sees this in p terms of power, not of idealism or what is right. They see this in terms of, well, 
if we can force these liberal outlets, these media outlets to cower in fear, we can use them more effectively. So, yeah, maybe we disagree with some of the more regressive aspects of Islamism, but there's a precedent set here. And the precedent is that violence can cancel out speech, that violence can be used in the freest of countries in America to trample on the very first freedom that we have, free speech. It happened with the cartoons in Denmark. It happened with Charlie Hebdo and people's willingness to print those cartoons after that massacre. And now we see it happening on our own college campuses. Not only is it happening with students, it should be noted that there are professors, that people who are in the power structure make open defenses of censorship. It has become an accepted form of argument on the left to state that speech is tantamount to violence. That's such a dangerous place to go, not just because it means that, yes, you have a heckler's veto, and yes, they can shut down speech. It means that they have created a false moral justification for the use of violence against speech, even in preventative terms. Where does that end? What will that lead to? You know the answers to this. This is not just about college students on campuses across the country, though that's troubling enough. It also includes the administrators who are complicit. It includes the college professors who make arguments now in the open and with disdain for the opposition that free speech should be protected. It's the former chairman of the DNC saying the First Amendment does not protect hate speech on national TV. It's mainstream Democratic politicians, the very top of their power apparatus, that if not openly supporting this anti-speech fascism on campuses at least looks at it as a useful tool in the culture wars. Because it puts the right on notice. See, we'll shut you down. And we know that ultimately progressivism and collectivism is about control. What better control can you establish than the right to threaten violence against somebody because you don't like their ideas? This is the beginning. This is the single cell of the virus that destroys an entire society and that we don't have all of our fellow Americans right now recognizing it as such and speaking out about this with one voice is deeply troubling. To me, more troubling than any policy opposition we've seen, more troubling than their lies about Obamacare, that they don't stand with us on this means we are a truly divided society and it means we are in a fight right now for what is most precious about this country, for what is most important to defend. And we need to understand this right away. I've got to hit a break. We'll be right back. The Dalai Lama, the former president of Mexico, famous people come to Cal all the time to speak and they're allowed to speak and their speech is not barred. Their speech is not relegated to 1 to 3 p.m. Their speech is not relegated to being off campus. And their speech is not restricted to only students, and their speech is not restricted to not being advertised. So these are all unique requirements that are being imposed on conservative speakers at Cal. You know, I'm pretty sure that Louis Farrakhan spoke at the University of Massachusetts some years before I was at Amherst, but they were still talking about that afterwards. Uh, While I was at Amherst, uh, we had Al Sharpton come and speak, former Democratic presidential candidate and uh, advisor at the time to... Tawana Brawley, um, not when he was running for president, but I'm saying advisor when Tawana Brawley was a, an issue in the news. Um, 
So, yeah, there, there have been controversial speakers on campus, for sure. Uh, but the campuses are just a part of this. And we should also note that while the worst manifestation of this speech suppression impulse is shown on college campuses, and it also, by the way, gives you a sense to which the uh, the modern academy has been infiltrated and overtaken by adherence to uh, Alinskyism, Saul Alinsky, uh, Herbert Marcuse, critical race theorists. People don't often talk about Marcuse these days, but a lot of Marcusean theory. Maybe I'll have to do some deep dive for us here on the show into a good old Herbert Marcuse and his theories because they are all over college campuses. I mean, these are these are the philosophical underpinnings for the anti-speech, anti-liberty menace that has become commonplace. We're not talking about one act of one student somewhere, which you'll notice that happens with like hate crimes. And we find out that a lot of times hate crimes are actually falsified to raise awareness. But a, a hate crime becomes a national news story, whether it's real or fake. Uh, this is campus policy. This is the police being told to stand down and allow a mob to determine what ideas can be heard on a publicly funded campus. This should be terrifying to people. And yet we're told, oh, no, well, in the interests of safety... Just like with the publishing of the cartoons, I should note. Oh, no, it, it's it's a real threat. Radical, And it was a real threat. And by the way, I believe that Berkeley, it's a real threat. But we're going to stand down in fear? I, I will say this. What do the citizens of Berkeley, California, pay taxes for if not to have a police force that protects them from getting punched in the mouth or hit with a bat for saying something in a public square they do not like? What What is the purpose of a police force if it doesn't protect that very first and fundamental freedom? I, I think it's a fair question to ask. And we've seen this before with people who have said even outright, in the case, I believe, of Baltimore and the riots there, they wanted to give protesters, and by protesters they mean rioters, the space to destroy. Well, in Berkeley they're giving protesters the space to riot, you could say, uh, and the space to suppress, the space to shut down debate and discussion. Forget about what is the purpose of a police department if it will not protect people exercising their First Amendment rights. What's the purpose of a university if not for free inquiry? Uh, I, I do appreciate Bill Maher's line on this. There is a movement of book burning, in a sense, among the liberal left today. And it's not fringe. It's much more mainstream that they're willing to to come out and say. Anyway, we got to talk taxes and maybe we'll get back on this issue in a few minutes. But uh... he spreads freedom because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. The president is going to seize this opportunity by leading the most significant tax reform legislation since 1986 and one of the biggest tax cuts in the American history. Our basic premise here is to simplify the tax system, lower rates, and make it easy. We don't want to penalize people. We want to make the system very fair. They're saying one of the biggest tax cuts of all time could be coming our way, my friends. Is this for real, and what does it all mean? We're joined now by Steve Cortez. He's a Fox News contributor, Republican strategist, former Trump spokesman, and currently a Wall Street strategist. Steve, thank you so much for being on with us. Buck, thanks for having me. 
Okay, so we know, let's start with, I think, the biggest single agenda item that was uh, confirmed today. We already knew this was going to be there, but the corporate tax rate dropping from 35 to 15 percent. Obviously, corporations that are paying that are going to care, but to the rest of the people listening, uh, to small business owners, to people who work for corporations or who even work for themselves, why should they get excited about this corporate tax cut if it happens? Right. No, listen, first of all, great question. And you're right. If it happens, I do think it will happen. And it better, by the way, because the American people gave the Republicans both houses of Congress and the Oval Office. Uh, You know, I like to use the analogy. They gave us the keys to the car. It's time to get this car rolling. Right. And and we're going to pay a price if we don't. But to, to get to the meat of your question, why does it matter? Here's why. Because big corporations and this is part of the problem with our insanely complicated tax code. Big corporations generally have not paid the corporate tax anyway. Why? Because they're incredibly effective through their K Street lobbyists at carve-outs and loopholes um, and and manipulating what is just a a ridiculously complicated tax code. However, the main job creators in our economy are not giant corporations. It's small business. Most of them, even if they file under their personal taxes, are paying the corporate rate. So what we're doing, what I don't want to say we, I don't work for the Trump administration, even though I have many friends there and I hope helped elect him. What, what the Trump administration is doing, I think, is freeing job creators to create more jobs, more wealth, more prosperity for America, because for the first time, Buck, and I think this is a really sad statistic, for the first time in recorded, uh, since we've kept records in America, we are closing more businesses than opening them. That's a terrible trend that needs to be reversed i believe the main cause of that trend previously is regulation and taxation regulation we're already moving on now we're going to move on taxation and we're going to unleash the potential of the american economy now the other part of this that jumped out at me right away had to do with the the individual rate and so we're all on the same page everyone none of this has happened yet this is just the proposal from the white house we got to see if congress will take action on this. And in fact, we got Paul Ryan earlier today saying the following. Our committees, Ways and Means and Finance in the White House, are going to work regularly now to, to make sure that we get a bill uh, together that's unified. Um, we've, we've been briefed on what they're going to do, and it's basically along exactly the same lines that we want to go. So what we see this is progress being made, showing that we're moving and getting on the same page. Okay, he, he wants us on the same page too. Uh, but so they're they're saying they're going to work with them on this. None of this is set in stone, so we're going to have to watch this very carefully. But one part of this that I'm going to want to see what they do in the end has to do with the individual income tax rate from seven to three brackets. It if they if the Trump administration plan goes through to be ten percent, twenty five percent, and thirty five percent. Um, that is better because it is simplified. But Steve, it does leave open who pays what at what or who pays uh, what rate, right? Because they haven't told us when does the twenty five, when does the thirty five kick in? Right. No, and Buck, that was not. Uh, you're right. That was not elucidated today. And look, I'll say in a perfect world, okay, I I'm a Trump supporter, but I lean pretty libertarian. In a perfect world, I would love a flat tax. No deductions, right? I mean, I think. Yeah, me no too. By the way, I, 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 yeah. and I'm anything less than that, and I'm not totally satisfied. But at least right. I feel like this is pushing in that direction. In economic nirvana, that's what we want. Okay, but let's deal in political reality of where we are as a country, and let's deal with the just albatross that the tax code is upon American growth and what is politically feasible today. I think what was proposed today 
is incredibly forward-looking and beneficial to growth. And you know, too, not only does it make economic sense, which is what I care the most about, by the way, and by the way, also why I think Trump won. Let's face it, Trump won, and I will say this with some you know, authority as someone who worked very hard on his campaign. We won because of disenfranchised, forgotten workers, primarily in the Midwest, if we want to get down to the electoral politics, who have been left behind by the very slow economic expansion that has only rewarded the very top end of the economic sphere. If you own assets, mainly stocks and real estate, you've had a great decade. If you're a striver uh, who lives off of wages, if you're somebody who's trying to build a business, this has been a tough, tough slog. That's what elected Donald Trump. I think what he's doing uh, with this tax proposal is saying we are going to transfer power from Washington, D.C., he promises in his inaugural to the people and in substantial ways. For instance, doubling the personal uh, uh, deduction. That's a massive win to middle America. And I think what he's saying is you know, a lot of wealthy people, by the way, I think this is an important point, Buck. A lot of wealthy people, particularly if you aren't a business owner, if you're a wealthy Wall Streeter, for instance, or you work for a huge law firm in Los Angeles, for instance, uh, this, these proposals will probably actually slightly increase your taxes because you're going to lose your state and local tax deductions. Um, yeah, some of the big blue states, by the way, are get, getting the right. rough stuff with this one. Uh, it's not helpful right. for New York or California. Well, elections matter, don't they? <laughs> yeah, they do. Same thing here. No, you know, if you're a big law partner in Chicago, guess what? You're probably going to pay a little bit more. I'm okay with that because you've also gotten an incredible free ride off of terrible government policy, while the regular worker, and I'm not generally a populist, but the regular worker has truly gotten shafted. And I think this is President Trump saying, we are going to incentivize job creators, which is basically small business owners, and we're going to give a break to middle-income people who are having such problems just meeting their basic needs, whether it be health insurance, tuition. Those are the people that we're aiming to help through this tax reform. Now, one part of this that I was I was wondering about uh, was that for married couples that are going to file together, they pay no taxes on the first $24,000 of income. How is that different from what we have right now? We know that already uh, there's a, a large percentage of the U.S. population that is working, doesn't pay any income tax. So how does this change the status quo? Right. No, and that's a good point. Listen, for, for millions of people, it won't, and that's a fair point that you make. Uh, but for some, it will. And the point is, I think, too— there are probably a lot of people who are close to that right now, yet with the, with, with the deduction being half of what is, pro- is proposed by President Trump, uh, they are forced to get into complicated tax filings. And I was so happy that Secretary Mnuchin pointed this out today. Ninety percent of Americans have to get help with their taxes. Uh, you know, that, that should be the other way. Only 10 percent. You know, roughly should have co- taxes that are so complicated that they that they need help. So simplification matters, and it's not just a matter of, of like, oh well, because it's a pain in the butt. No, it's more than that. It's because the complication lends itself always then to cronyism, and it's part of why we have built a system where four of the five richest counties by income are in the Washington D.C. area. That is not because they are more prosperous you know, in their thinking or in their work ethic or in their ingenuity. It's because Washington has become a giant leech upon the rest of America, and the tax code is perhaps the primary vehicle uh, for that cronyism. And so if we remove that and simplify that, we free America to operate on its own without picking winners and losers. And But listen, I, I hear what you're saying. You're right. For, for most Americans, that won't matter. It won't. But for some, it will. 
And the point is simplification and reduce taxes, not just in rates, but also reduce them in the complication. Yeah, well, that also, that, as you're alluding to before, that makes the shenanigans in the tax code uh, much harder to pull off, right? If, if it's a very, if it's a straightforward tax code, then you don't have members of Congress that are able to do favors for big special interests. When you got seventy thousand plus pages to work with, which is what you have right now, it's really easy for something to get slipped into an appro- appropriations bill here or some aspect of law there that affects one business or and no one really knows what's going on. No one knows what the full extent of the tax code is. Even people who work in it, I know, say that, look, there's some questions that even the IRS can't resolve when you pose it to them. So simplification is essential. But of course, we're going to hear from the left that and, and from Democrats and I, and I think from some Republicans, too, which is the uh, the wild card in all of this, where I know the right's happy, right? L- lower taxes, simplified taxes. Not everybody on the right's going to be happy, though. There's a lot of cronyism in D.C. They're going to say this is expensive, Steve. And saying a tax cut is expensive bothers me just as a philosophical point, because it's not that seems to indicate that it's the government's money to begin with, that, you know, right. there's a there's a set amount that we owe them and that if we give them less than that then it's it is expensive because they're right. supposed to get that money um but we say we'll pay with it or rather the, the trump administration saying it'll come via growth here's steve mnuchin talking about uh, exactly that we have over 100 people in the treasury that have been working on tax and scoring lots of different scenarios this will pay for itself with growth and with reduced reduction of of different deductions and closing loopholes. We got to try it to see if it's true. I know that almost sounds Nancy Pelosi-like with we need to pass it to see what's in it, but we won't know right. if there's the growth without passing the cuts, but how, how likely do you think that growth really is to, in terms of paying for what we've cut? Listen, I, I, I really think, Buck, the American economy is like a sprinter that has been forced to wear a weighted vest of regulation and taxation. I firmly believe once we take that off, we have not lost our initiative. We haven't lost our economic dynamism. Uh, we haven't lost our hustle. Once we take that that weighted vest off, we're going to run like we can't believe. So I just believe that. Uh, and I think, by the way, history shows that. It's not just my you know fanciful belief. We know it from the 1980s and what happened once Reagan. And by the way, that's the last time we had serious tax cuts in this country. Think about how crazy that is. 1981 is the last time that we had serious material tax cuts in this country. The number one song in 1981 when we had tax cuts, by the way, was Physical by Olivia Newton-John. All right, that's how dated the idea of real tax reform is. I mean, that's nuts. It's it's time for new tax reform. But to get to this question of scoring, too, and I because I think this is important, I, and I don't want to sound flippant about this, I almost don't care about the scoring, because you're right. It's not the government's money, first of all. Secondly, we need growth more than we need a balanced budget. I do want a balanced budget, but I think that will come via growth. And so I, you know, I don't want to get our, tor- our priorities twisted. And I think it's fa- I've seen people saying, well, interest rates will skyrocket if we run the debt up even more. And I look at them, and I go, well, we're at 20 trillion. <laughs> so and we've had basically close to zero interest rates for quite a while now. But anyway, um, we, you got to do this in order to see where, where it's going to go. But Steve, I wanted to ask you if I could uh, send you around on a, on a tour of places in this country that are associated with Trump's victory, Trump's uh, surprise to the journalists and the media complex uh, victory, Michigan, Pennsylvania, some parts of the country that feel like they've been left out, not just politically, but but economically. And those two things, of course, go hand in hand. If I sat you down in a, in a diner in Michigan or if I took you to a, a truck stop in the panhandle of Florida and, and said, Steve, tell these tell the people here gathered why this tax cut would be good for them. What would you say? 
you know, no, or this I'm, tax I'm plan so all around. Right, right. I'm so glad you asked that. And by the way, just as, as a quick aside, uh, I noticed that, uh, you know, we, we had this um, picture from the from the Oval Office of uh, it was Ted Nugent and Kid Rock uh, and the left exploded. And how, how dare they? You know, how uh, whatever, how uncouth to have these people. The voters who elected us in the Midwest primarily love these people, by the way. And so I'd love to sit down with them. And here's what I would tell them, though, specifically about this tax plan is I would say we are finally recognizing your role in the American economy. You've had terrible trade deals that have unfairly punished American workers. Subsidized businesses in China have have have. I shouldn't even say competed, but have have falsely competed with you um, for for the output of your work. And we are number one, uh, re- revising quickly those trade deals or revoking them if need be. But number two, this tax code is telling you that your taxes won't just be simplified, but also the burden on you on middle class earners massively reduced. And on top of that, the real job creators, the real ones, which is primarily entrepreneurial business, they are going to be freed from this leviathan of government control, this albatross of taxation and regulation. And it's going to mean more jobs in your communities in Ohio and in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin. And you're going to be not just reelecting Donald Trump in 2020. You're going to be reelecting him by a massive margin and tectonically, permanently, I hope, uh, uh, moving the electoral uh, uh, trajectory of the United States. Steve Cortez, a Fox News contributor and Wall Street strategist, former Trump spokesman as well. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your expertise. Thank you, Buck. Team, we're going to hit a break here, and we'll be right back. Welcome back, team. Um, 844-900-2825. That's the number to call in. We'd love to hear uh, your thoughts on uh, the tax plan that has come out. Very curious to know if, in fact, you think that this is going to get it done. If it will get it done. Um, I was trying to find it before. I had a couple of quick thoughts on addendums to our little discussion about uh, free speech. Um, one was, uh, if you're looking for, it's a, it's a little bit of like being back in the classroom, which for some of you you may love, but it's it's dense. But John Stuart Mill on liberty makes the argument and is really a, a seminal work in, in political science and walks you through the... Ba- the, the whole rationale behind freedom of thought, free speech is the foundation of, of really all freedom. So, And also why bad arguments must not be kept out of the public square, but must be allowed to be aired, because um, you don't know. One of the upsides of all this is that conservatives, because they're in such hostile territory on campus, I think end up being very adept in arguments and very, very comfortable with their with at least explaining their positions to people. Um, and that then brings me to, I, I saw a poll earlier earlier today, and I was looking for it, and I, unfortunately, I'll have to find it again later. Oh, no, I have it. I have it. Hold on. So it is from Dartmouth College, and it is the Dartmouth, which is America's, uh, America's most or longest-serving pl- uh, newspaper on a college campus. America, sorry, I'm looking at America's oldest college newspaper, founded 1799. That's what they say, and they did a. This is just one school, but I'm pretty sure this is indicative of what you'd see in a whole bunch of places. I'm sure this is representative of 
But hold on, keep in mind, Dartmouth is a, relatively speaking, has a robust conservative tradition among these schools. I didn't go there. I had a bunch of friends who went there. But uh, Dinesh D'Souza, Dartmouth grad, uh, the Dartmouth Review is a well-known conservative publication on campus. But the question they posed to students was, how comfortable would you be having a roommate with opposing political views to your own, right? So this is a question that I'm sure we could all uh, guess where this is going. And overwhelmingly... Uh, it was Democrats who had by far the most respondents, uh, highest percentage of respondents who would be uncomfortable having a roommate with opposing political views. In fact, Republicans were almost 70 percent totally comfortable with it. Almost half of Democrats, 45 percent uncomfortable with it. I promise you this would be similar at a vast majority of uh, no name brand schools across the country. I, I can't speak to what it would be at uh, places that I don't know, but I, I'm I would guess that it's pretty similar. So you got to most Republicans are like, yeah, it's cool, man. We can all have our ideas and beliefs, and that's that's good. And almost half of Democrats are like, no, I will not live with you. I will not be cool with this. And this is just uh, it's a snapshot, but it tells us what's going on in the broader culture. This is the problem. Uh, virtue signaling has become a way of life for these Democrats, for these leftists. This is who they are now. This is what they believe about themselves. It's not a policy dispute where people with good intentions are on both sides. It's there are the good people and the bad people. And the good people vote for Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and Democrats. That's what they think. More coming up. Stay with me. He spreads freedom. Because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. Welcome back, team. 844-900-2825. Buck Sexton here with you all now. Very excited to continue our conversation. Um, So I've got some good news. and Well, no, I'm actually going to start in reverse order. I've got some like not-so-great news to talk about with you, but it's also not surprising. Two things we're going to hit on here coming up. Uh, one is the decision yesterday about... Sanctuary cities coming down from a uh, federal judge. And then we'll also get into the latest on Obamacare. Um, so uh, this is not surprising at all. But because yesterday I, I knew, based on the ruling and the way it was written, and you got this judge in San Francisco, that this guy, Judge Oreck, was most likely what we've come to expect from a lot of the Obama appointees, which is just someone who is completely unmoored from the law, uh, completely untethered to any constitutional principle, really. Just can they come up with a construct that has the trappings of legal analysis that vaguely reads and feels like something a lawyer might write or a judge might say, and just put that out there to give you the policy outcome that the person wants? That's that the judge wants in this case. That's what we can expect. And and the lasting legacy of Obama's federal court packing is something that we should not anytime soon forget. Um, almost a third of the federal judiciary Obama appointees. And they were I mean, there was no remember, got rid of the uh, got rid of the filibuster for lower court nominees there. They could just put through anybody they wanted straight line vote. Just just fill the benches with as many progressive activist judges as you possibly can. And that's what happened. Not a ton of press coverage about it because it was better for it to be a stealthy program. But that's the reality. And now here we are. 
Judge Oreck from San Francisco has, this is from uh, Fox News earlier today, quote, uh, a, well, he was a lawyer for San Francisco firm with deep ties to Democratic politics. He helped organize a nationwide effort dubbed Lawyers for Kerry, as in John Kerry, and was credited with raising more than $1 million for Kerry in the San Francisco area alone. When Kerry announced he would not seek his party's nomination in January 2007, a core group of a dozen or so attorneys met at Oryx firm, San Francisco-based Coblenz, Patch, Duffy, and Bass, and effectively became lawyers for Obama. The group became this kind of built-in network of fundraisers, uh, attorney Thomas McInerney, McInerney said. Obama wasn't even officially in the race yet. As a bundler for Obama, Oric raised at least $200,000, according to records obtained by the watchdog group Public Citizen. A bundler, according to Public Citizen, plays an enormous role in determining the success of political campaigns and are apt to receive preferential treatment if their candidate wins. Oh, so this guy's like a big fundraiser for Obama, making, deci- making a decision to shut down a part of Trump's executive order. Now, I, I also need to back it up here for a second. There was a lot, there were a lot of folks talking today about Trump's uh, immigration order and sanctuary cities, saying a lot of stuff that's not really, strictly speaking, accurate. There's a lot of that on some of the different channels, including some people that I usually enjoy watching on the television, uh, talking about the news. Uh, this is a nuanced part of the overall executive order as i broke it down for yesterday it has to do with are they are these funds that are specifically allocated for immigration enforcement by law enforcement or is it applicable to general law enforcement funds or is it applicable to just overall funding from the federal government there's dispute over that and also is this requesting de- uh, detainers to be uh detainers to be honored, meaning holding somebody who's in local custody for federal immigration authorities, or is it just insisting on federal law that is already on the books that says that you have to tell someone, you have to tell the federal government if someone with illegal immigration status is in custody, is it just that? These are still questions they are being worked out right now, but the San Francisco judge here, Oric, came out and shut the whole thing down. It's now nationwide. A stay is in effect. So that means that for the time being, it has to be litigated out. But people are saying, oh, there's utter lawlessness. and Overstating things can get interest, unfortunately. And as we see, there was a, uh, a tweet from earlier this week. I will track it down. That's a perfect example of some people would call it fake news. Um, no, it, it, it is fake news, actually, that got thousands and thousands of retweets about something Trump said. And then the same guy, he was from The New York Times, followed up with, well, actually, that was totally out of context and not what I not what should have come across there to people and that got like five retweets no one cares so so a, a ton of people see the lie very few people see the correction but you know the media that's that's how they that's how they roll uh you know ir- irresponsible they just go from some subject to subject and uh, it doesn't really matter to them all right uh back to this judge though i got a little got a little diverted there for a moment so you got this guy Oric, and, and and a lot of people are, with the analysis on this they're they're all off. They're not really paying attention to the details. But the point here is that Oric is somebody whom you would think maybe is a bit politicized. Yeah, I think that's pretty clear at this point. Tough to make an argument otherwise. And then you find out more about him. 
uh, his this is again from his piece in Fox. Oryk's first position was in the civil division of President Obama's Department of Justice. Near the end of Obama's second term, he was appointed to his current post. Now, uh, the civil division of President Obama's Department of Justice, that's that's an interesting uh, little note here. And then you have a commenter on the blog, The Robing Room, which is apparently for judges and justices. I, I don't know about this place. Uh, called Oric a, quote, social justice activist for whom the rule of law is a great malleable notion of no import, end quote. Okay, so that's from the Fox News piece. Uh, we have an interesting situation playing out in this country right now where we are still told there, there are a few areas of American public life that the media is maintaining should be above reproach or above criticism or we can all agree that it's nonpartisan. And judges are supposed to be in that category, according to the left, but it's because judges have been giving the left what the left wants for a long time. Very effective. Right? Whole books, books have been written on this. Lots of conservative authors are out there talking about activist judges. And it's because we have a different conservatives and progressives, liberals, leftists, have a different core philosophy when it comes to the law. You will see conservative judges that read the text of a law, and even though they don't philosophically like what that means, they will accede. They will say, yeah, the law is the law. Progressive or activist judges see the text of a law and they think, well, what could this mean to get me to the place I want it to get me? This is really the legacy of bringing in coddled, self-righteous, and uh, over-applauded college students and telling them not not to read and learn Shakespeare, but to deconstruct Shakespeare. Forget what the words are. What should the words be? What do they re- what did the bard really mean here? And this is a real thing that they do. Deconstruction was a very big a uh, very big uh, part of a lot of uh, literature courses. It was true at Amherst, it's true of a lot of places. So that's what we, that's what we're told to do. And and then they go off to law school and as friends of mine who have gone through the law school process in recent years and are working in law as well, uh, as as they have told me time and time again, law schools are just as left wing now as campuses as the broader campuses that they are attached to. It, you would think that a professional academy would be a little bit more real world based, right? It, it, essentially, sure, we've got people studying, you know, uh, literature, f- feminist literature of. Uh, I don't know, the the South Pacific, 1850 to 1925 or something, right? Well, whatever. And you think, and that's, of course, going to bring certain kinds of professors into the situation, and uh, you've got all these different courses of study. And we've been allowing people for a long time under the guise of a liberal arts education to just allow people to make it all up as they go along and call it an education. That's not the way it's supposed to be, but that's what's been happening. But at least... You figure when you got to go get professional training, and it is interesting, by the way, you used to be able to, in a lot of states, be admitted to the bar just based on the exam, right? So you take the bar exam, and if you pass, you're a lawyer. If you have the knowledge, you get to be a lawyer. Now I believe they've gotten rid of that everywhere, and you have to go to a three-year accredited law school to be a practicing lawyer in any state. Um, So... You'd think maybe that because it's professional in nature, the training is professional, that you would not have the same level of 
leftist indoctrination, you would be wrong. They are they're just as they're just as crazy now. They're just as in their own way. Right. I mean, obviously, they're uh, they're not able to do the same kinds of uh, the same level and the same frequency of protests about, uh, I don't know, transgenderism or whatever as undergrad programs are, because undergrad programs in a lot of places are really just very expensive babysitting programs for young adults. Uh, but the law schools, uh, I can tell you, they have people that do, you know, walkouts and uh, they go marching about Trump fascism and all the same kind of stuff. So the law has been infiltrated as well uh, from from the bottom level up. And, of course, the Supreme Court, and by the way, we will see the real showdown happen over the next Supreme Court nomination. This was the so-called Scalia seat. Wasn't it funny the Democrats calling it the Merrick Garland seat? Oh, that's so cute. Because, yeah, everybody, other than the uh, other than court watchers and writers for, like, Politico and the Washington Post, I don't think anybody in the country gave a, a, an anything about Merrick Garland. And, yeah, that was just all manufactured controversy. But the next Supreme Court nomination is going to be when you see the real fight. And I have to say, that's also where you'll see uh, how, yes, Trump putting Gorsuch up has been great. They're really going to turn the heat on for the next one, though, because if if Trump tries to go for Gorsuch part Dieu, if he tries to go for a a second version of a conservative originalist uh, judge, the left is going to throw everything, everything they have at. It. I mean, that that's kitchen sink time for them. I don't even know what that means, by the way, because I feel like they do that. You know, with Trump, they're already going, oh, my gosh, it's fascism every day. And then what's left? You know, <laughs> what's the greater level of outrage than what we've already seen? I, I don't know. Um, but this is now this is now the reality of our judicial system. That's the long and short of it here. You you have a, a hyper partisan and politicized uh, judiciary, which is very disconcerting. Um, because there is, it's very hard to get any accountability for these judges. And you have Oric, who's clearly an Obama partisan, clearly an ideologue in the mold of a progressive Obama supporter, who's spent a lot of his time and energy raising money for Obama. Obama was the furthest left uh, senator ever to be, well, fir- furthest left senator ever to be elected uh, president, certainly in the last hundred years or so. I mean, I don't know, maybe we could go back and find somebody else. Um, but it's... It's now open ideological warfare on the courts. We're just told, oh, no, 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 respect the robes. Don't don't be critical of judges. No, we should be critical of judges because they uh, that there is now an entire philo- uh, philosophy of the law that is the law doesn't really matter, that it's just about power politics playing out in a courtroom. And Ulrich is yet another example of that. The decision yesterday was kind of un- incomprehensible in, in some parts, but. That's not surprising because self-contradiction and wild sweeping judgments, this is what you get when someone's sitting there just telling you what they want, not what the law is. And that's what we saw from uh, judge uh, the judge out in Hawaii, an island in the Pacific, <laughs> judge out in Hawaii, and that's what we see now from Oryx. So that's on the, uh, not, on the not-so-great side of things. Once again, a progressive left activist judge has... Put a uh, put a hurdle in the way of the Trump administration's agenda, and we shall see. But I want to talk to you also about um, health care, and I've got some good news on that and some interesting stuff. But there's good news. Talks about the Freedom Caucus. 844-900-2825. Much more show coming. We're going to talk about North Korea, ESPN, Bill Nye. It's going to be packed, everybody. Be right back. 
Lines are lit here in the Freedom Hut, my friends. Let's take some calls. Want to hear from all of you. Mimi in California on the iHeart app. What's up, Mimi out west? Hey, Buck. Happy uh, happy days today. Uh, <laughs> okay, yeah, sure. Happy days. I like it. You, you, did a, you did a fantastic job in your opening monologue on free speech. Thank you. And that was really what I wanted to talk to you about. Sure. I had just heard recently that uh, Rabbi Lappin, who's a conservative Jewish speaker, was shouted down on a campus. This was happening in the last day or two. I think he doesn't he have a podcast at my old my old stomping ground, The Blaze. He has a great podcast about at your old stomping grounds. But what I want, what it brought to mind was I read a book a couple of years ago by Jonah Goldberg called Liberal Fascism. Great book. And at the time, I really, I really didn't get it because you always think of fascism as coming from the right. Oh, it does That's not. Yeah. And it does not. And that is a fantastic book. And I think people should should uh, dust that one off and take a look at it because we are it's alive and well right now in this country. Liberal fascism. Yeah, it's, it's a fantastic I've recommended it before on my show. And, um, uh, you know, it's it's a uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm plugging Jonah Goldberg's uh, Goldberg's book today, Liberal Fascism. So it, it, it's an excellent book. And, and it does deal with that. Variation. Mimi Shields, hi. Thank you for calling in. Um, it deals with, well, l- if you learn the history, and maybe this is worth a, just fascism, the term, the history, all of it is worth a, a deep dive on the show. I've got a few of those in mind now because the one great thing with radio is I have the ability to spend enough time with you to really have a conversation in detail, in depth, history, philosophy, all of it. Put together with current affairs and not just give you the, you know, blah, 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 let's go to commercial, which is unfortunately what a lot of TV is. Um, but uh, fascism comes from, uh, well, fascism comes from the notion of bundle of sticks. In fact, you can go and see where the, the origin of the term fascies, uh, that is discussed in liberal fascism and national socialism, which which is when people think of the uh, ideology that is most associated with fascism, although Franco in Spain, uh, people think of Franco and fascism, and we should talk about all of these things. Um, but socialism and communism come from the same basic ideology in the uh, aftermath of the Great Depression and the financial failures that rocked the entire uh, world uh, in the 1930s, there was a rise of these collectivist movements because of a belief in a better world. It was really a social justice issue, uh, and they thought that capitalism had failed. That was the basic premise. Capitalism had, in the 1930s, capitalism failed and had brought the First World War upon uh, the Western, well, the world, but particularly the Western world. And then later on, uh, you saw the rise of various movements that were collectivist in nature. You had socialism, communism, and the socialists and communists worked together sometimes in Europe, and they also were in conflict at times in Europe. And national or, or fascism is just national socialism. That in the European context, when you look at it historically, that's what it, that's what it is. So it's socialism plus nationalism equals fascism. <laughs> so this idea that fascism is on the right, no. It's just socialism. It is a, a heresy of a collective, a collectivist ideology. And this all comes from or really the, the centerpiece of the whole debate is whether a society puts first and foremost, is 
the basic building block is the centerpiece of a society, the individual or is it the collective? That's a very quick version of a much longer discussion we'll have on the show. Dennis in North Carolina on WPTI. What's up, sir? Yeah, I want to talk to you about the taxes. You were mentioning taxes before, and it's great. There's a new tax reform, except that one of the things that seems to get overlooked is the uh, consumption tax, the fair tax. And I think it's a lot better than having even a straight flat tax, because I think with a flight, excuse me, let me try that again. With a straight flat tax, eventually you're going to have deductions, one little deduction here, another one here, and eventually you're back to where we are now. But with the fair tax, um, it's, it's just a consumption tax, and a lot of people misunderstand it, and they think that you're going to go buy, for example, today I heard like a refrigerator. You go buy a refrigerator, and you're going to add 20% on What they don't say is that refrigerator is going to be 20% less to start with because there are no corporate taxes, and there's approximately – 20% embedded taxes on all the products you buy today. And there are a lot of other good things about fair tax. Uh, because, it's, because it's cheaper for the manufacturer, we're going to compete globally a lot better. We're going to be more competitive. Give me a fair tax or a flat tax, and I'll be happy. Uh, but I think Trump is pushing in yeah. the right direction, and I hope they can at least get this through. Because if this works and we see growth and people are happy, then we can get closer to a fair or a flat tax later. Shield side, Dennis. Team, we'll be right back. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields high. We've got Wayne in Mississippi on the line, WBUV. Wayne, good to have you. Uh, all right, Buck. Wonderful to talk to you. You Love too, you sir. Too. Thank you. A man with... Education, smarts, and experience, you know, you're just a wonderful guy to listen to. You're very kind, but, sir. Thank uh, you. So my question for you is, why don't we just have an assassin take out this uh, leader in North Korea? Why do we bother with big armies and navies and politicians getting their bloomers in a bunch? Why don't, why don't we just have somebody take him out? Let me address this. Uh, a few things. First of all, I, I do think it's a much more interesting discussion. Or the, I think there's a, what is it? There's an executive executive order that that bans the U.S. from engaging in uh, in assassination of foreign heads of state. But I'm also pretty sure that you know at the beginning of military hostilities, if we were to say blow up the headquarters of a of an enemy state and engaged uh, or in hostilities at the start. Uh, that wouldn't be considered an assassination. So it's, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting discussion uh, for just just that issue, right? With, with the morality of taking out a foreign head of state. Now, but what you're talking about isn't declare, you know, we, we declare war and go after a leader. You're just saying why not have it? Uh, why not have it just done? Um, there are there will be immediate ethical. There, wait, hold on. I'm, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get there. Hold on a second, Wayne. There, there are ethical and and legal concerns about that. Um, we we are we are slow to ever. Uh, I think for obvious reasons, we're slow to ever engage in taking out a a foreign politician. Although you know, people would probably turn to me and be like, "Well, Buck, what about uh, what about drone strikes and what about other stuff that happens that that takes people out who aren't an imminent threat to." Uh, U.S. security or U.S. personnel, you know, the government, you know, that happens, right? So it's it's not as obvious of a, of an answer as I think some would suggest. But on the that's on the ethical side of it, right? But on the uh, functional side, what would happen? 
couple of things, uh, Wayne. First of all, not that easy to pull off. I, if you're going to try getting close to the head of North Korea uh, to pull off such a maneuver would be very difficult. Uh, would be very. And what is the mo- guys? What is the movie where the, where they go? They're trying to assassinate. The, what's it called? The, thank you. The interview. That's the movie where they actually have with with uh, Seth Ro- uh, Seth Rogen and uh, yeah. the other guy, uh, James Franco. Thank you. But the, the it'd be very tough to get close to him. And that movie, I felt like could have been funnier than it was. Side note, uh, very close to get get uh, or very tough to get close enough to him. Also, if you took out Kim Jong Un, nobody really knows what would happen. Meaning that even if you got over the moral and ethical concerns about taking out a foreign head of state, uh, who who takes over? You know, maybe the maybe the the craziest North Korean general of all of of Kim Jong Un's generals is all of a sudden in charge, and now we've you know, or or someone let's just say has taken out of you know, the, the the head of the government there. Who knows what they'll do? And and I think the most likely response would be that they would view it as. Uh, because the the leadership there is so central to the regime and to it, or, or so central to the state, the regime is is the foundation for the entirety of the North of what is North Korea. That if you take out the the top guy, they would view it as an as an existential threat, and they would respond by opening up with artillery and and you know, Lord knows what else on South on South Korea, on Seoul, on maybe Japan. And, you know, they've got all these missiles, they've got nukes. It, it would get very, very messy very fast. So, but even, let's just say you could get it done, Wayne, and you were willing to get it done, and those are two very big ifs. I'm not sure that the situation would be dramatically improved. I don't know if, any, I, I can tell you this, I don't know if anybody uh, can, can really speak authoritatively on who would, if that were to happen, who would be next in command? Who would who would take charge? And if you don't know that, well, then you know it would be like imagine if we had taken out Saddam and just taken out Saddam, right? And Uday or Kuse all of a sudden was in charge. I don't think that's an upgrade, or it wouldn't have been an upgrade. We took them out too. But side note, uh, I don't think that would have been an upgrade. I think that would have been uh, probably just as bad, maybe worse, based on what we know about those sadistic maniacs. So. A very look, very interesting question, Wayne. Have you seen the interview? By the way, it's a comedy, but it, it takes your premise and runs with it. Uh, I, no, but I'm aware of it. I've heard of it, and uh, I know what you're talking about. Did I? I mean, okay, but I, fair enough, man. Well, if you get a chance, check it out. You know, maybe uh, maybe watch it on demand. And and uh, I hope I gave your question all all due attention because it's a, it's a, one that I'm sure a lot of people have thought about before. Shields high, Wayne. Thank you for calling in. Uh, okay, on the I got I got into that one. I got. I got a, Sink my teeth into that one. That was interesting. Um, it's a fair question. And you look at the the history of not just from the U.S. perspective, but the history of assassinations in general is always um, the law of unintended consequences looms large. And uh, assass- the assassins in general are the original assassins are a fascinating story. I'm surprised there haven't been. There hasn't been more in pop culture about them. I know there was that video game, uh, Assassin's Creed, that does give you some of the backstory and some sense of when they uh, became prominent. They were a Muslim sect, uh, the Nizari Ismailis. They were Ismaili Shia Muslims. And uh, based, well, their, their famous castle was at uh, Alamut, and they were they played a large role in some of the 
infighting between not just Christians and Muslims, but within within the various uh, Muslim regimes during the time of the Crusades. And then you get into even debates over where the term assassin comes from. People say it's uh, related to hashish because they were given hashish to give them a sense of the paradise that they would go to uh, as a result of trading their life for the assassination process itself, for the assassination act itself. Uh, that was how they, they would get very close. This was the, the discipline that it was required to be a part of this. It was a religious sect. Uh, they were uh, zealots, uh, now borrowing a term from uh, the Old Testament, but uh, they were a religious sect that would engage in this process of, of eliminating enemy heads of state or, or anybody really uh, for a price, and they would do it oftentimes publicly and, and just with a, a dagger, but they would infiltrate at the very upper echelon, and anyway, it was you know it was interesting. And the Mongols eventually did away with them. It was the Mongol invasion. I forget which of the Khans. Um, I, I should look this up. I, you know, the, doing go, bouncing around so much on history. I I usually do research before I talk to you about history specifically because I don't want to tell you anything that's incorrect on the air. Uh, but they the the Mongols did not want to be messing around with the assassin sect, and so they they destroyed their castle and they. Uh, eliminated them wherever they could and wherever they could find them. Um, but yeah, assassins, Nizari Ismailis. Mm, figured I'd, and the original assassins were a Muslim religious sect. There you go. I haven't even gotten into Obamacare yet. Let, let me uh, let me go to break here. On the flip side, we'll talk Obamacare and the UN trying to tell us that, no, nah, you can't repeal Obamacare. Huh? Oh yeah, we'll get there. Stay with me. So we got the tax plan details today which are pretty good, not not the best ever. But we've got some tax plan details that I think uh, we can get enthusiastic about. I, I like the broad strokes and like what I'm seeing here. But health care is also supposed to be top of the agenda. In fact, health care was supposed to be dealt with first. And last time around, there was a little, a little stumbling block well, there were a bunch of them, but one of them involved the Freedom Caucus. Freedom Caucus was all like, hey, uh, this is not a good bill you want us to go forward with. And in fact, it keeps the basic architecture of Obamacare in place. It, certainly, it was certainly not a repeal and replace. You could argue that it was um, better than Obamacare, but it wasn't a total repudiation of Obamacare, which, as we know, we've been told for years was terrible, was so bad, was ruining health care, was unconstitutional. Well, all of that I uh, believe in and agree uh, with, but you can't tell me something's terrible and, and freedom-destroying and free market-destroying for like seven years and then turn around and say, you know what? It's actually not that bad. Some parts of it I kind of like. But the new version announced today, new version of the House Freedom Oh, sorry, new version of the Obamacare repeal and replace bill is getting a thumbs up so far from the Freedom Caucus. Here's what The Hill has to say about it. Quote, the group of, rough, of roughly 30 hardline conservatives held out for weeks, uh, scuttling a planned uh, House vote on the bill last month after it became clear there wasn't enough Republican support. The group said it sees the new amendment— brokered by Freedom Caucus Chairman Mark Meadows and centrist uh, Tom MacArthur 
as the best option short of fully repealing the 2010 law. The MacArthur Meadows Amendment lets states apply for waivers from Obamacare provisions that ban insurers from charging sick people higher premiums and mandate minimum insurance coverage requirements as long as the state offers high-risk pools as an alternative. Moderate Republicans are... Okay, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what it says in the Hill. Um, we got to see what the moderate Republicans, of course, do now because I think they like to be in a situation where they can say, hold on, hold on, we don't we don't want our stuff. We, we don't want to not get the stuff that we've been getting. I need to worry about my constituents here. I need to worry about my state or my district. And that's an escape hatch for them. It's a way to evade accountability. But here, if a state has the option of staying within the Obamacare provisions or stepping outside of them as long as they offer a high-risk pool— then we get to see what states work, what states come up with a creative provision that provides better care to people while also not excluding those who would be in a high-risk pool or those with pre-existing conditions from getting good health care. I don't even like to talk about coverage because coverage is not the goal. Giving people a piece of paper that says you have health care coverage uh, is not is not what we're looking for here. We want there to be uh, a system in place whereby people can buy insurance plans that they can understand that that they want, that doesn't overly burden them financially, and that does keep them from becoming financially insolvent and possibly even not having access to very necessary care. Not emergency care, but very necessary care. And you start to get into an interesting discussion about what the differences are between those two things. Um, uh, th- but that's what we're looking to create, a, a more transparent and free market in healthcare. Because right now what you've got you know, plenty of employers that talk to friends at their businesses. And uh, what you see is lots of, oh, here's my health insurance card. Well, what does that do? Well, I can't actually see any doctors because there are none within five miles of my house that take this insurance or 10 miles of my house or whatever it is that take this insurance. And if I'm going to see a doctor further than that, I've got to take a day off from work. And oh, by the way, it doesn't even kick in until I've spent three or four thousand. And then beyond that, it only kicks in if I'm in network at a certain level. And, you know, the the thing that that drives me the craziest of all the of all the insurance games that are played with health insurance is the okay, you have to if you spend three thousand dollars, you'll you'll be. Uh, you'll be covered beyond that, right? So your out-of-pocket cost will be three, which is a pretty, I think it's pretty high deductible. I mean, most people are going to spend, uh, you know, m- m- most people are going to have to see a doctor over the course of a year for something, and uh, it looks like you're going to be paying. But I would even be okay with that. Um, uh, I mean, I think a lot of us would be okay with that, given what the plan, there are plans right now where the deductible is like 10000 I mean, the deductibles are massive. But at least if it was 3000 or 2000 and then above that, you were really... Uh, you are really covered and not, you know, there are all these ways and they always say it's awkward and we're protecting insurance pool. But um, a normal person doesn't think that they go to a doctor in network and they should be uh, getting a bill in the mail that says, well, yeah, it's a network. But, you know, these you paid a th- you paid five hundred dollars out of pocket. but We're only going to cover 90 of it because we don't think that's reasonable and customary what that doctor charged you. That and then you get to fight with them. People say, "Oh, well, if it's in your contract, you know, you get to spend all this time." But it's it's never what it's supposed to be. 
And it's never what it's supposed to be because you got everyone playing games with this stuff and nobody wants to just deal with reality. We're always being lied to by the insurance companies and we're being lied to by politicians even more so. And this doesn't have to be so complicated, but complication allows for obfuscation and obfuscation is a political advantage to borrow from that guy uh, Gruber from MIT. You know, if tra- lack of transparency is a, is a political advantage. I forgot that was guy. Something Gruber was his name. Um, oh, but so the, the House Freedom Caucus says this is pretty good. Okay. And that means that states might be able to do something other than be under the— And uh, let's keep this in mind. If a state, let's say, oh, I don't know, uh, Texas says, well, you know what? We're going to do our own thing. We're going to create a high-risk pool, and we're going to allow— uh, we're going to allow insurance companies to offer insurance as they want to. Forget about the Obamacare mandate of what has to be covered. And we're going to do this. And if that worked and it was in pandemonium and you didn't have insurers pulling out of the market and it didn't seem and, and the care that people was getting was better, more accessible, cheaper, fairer. And you also had the provision of health care for people in the high risk pools. Other states might then be under pressure to actually do the same thing. Because I think a lot of us just want to see, want the option of buying the health care that we want to buy. And if it works in another state, then we'll know for sure it will work in our state. So it encourages, dare I say, innovation in some of these states and how they deliver health care. Okay. But the other part of this I want to talk about, and I guess I don't have too much time to hit it now, because we still have to talk about ESPN, North Korea, Bill Nye, jam-packed third hour, uh, is that... According to the Washington Post here and other places, repealing Obamacare could be a, quote, violation of international law. Let me read you from this. The United Nations has contacted the Trump administration as part of an investigation into whether repealing the Affordable Care Act without an adequate substitute for the millions who would lose health coverage would be a violation of several international conventions that bind the states. Turns out the notion that health care is a right is more than just Democratic talking point. This is an opinion writer in The Washington Post. There's a confidential five-page urgent appeal from the office of the U.N. High Commissioner on Human Rights in Geneva sent to the Trump administration saying that the repeal of the Affordable Care Act could put the United States at odds with its international obligations. Let me just say, this has uh, you, you have members of Congress later on in this piece saying, like Nancy Pelosi saying that her uh, office did not get this, and Chuck Schumer, oh, no, I didn't get this. Oh, I've never seen this one before. Because they know that, oh, yeah, that's going to help the Democrat cause, the U.N. telling the U.S. what it can do with its health care system. Because really wa- we really want to listen to what the United Nations has to say about our health care system. This would play into, I mean, can you, can you imagine if Democrats tried to make it make a thing of this? I know some opinion writers are, but if the Democrats in Congress are like, oh, well, look what the U.N. says. We can't repeal the Affordable Care Act. Oh, the surge in support for repealing the ACA from so many people who just would not be able to stand for a moment. The same body that just with the United Nations that just elevated Saudi Arabia to the uh, what is it? The, the Women's Rights Commission of you, you can't make this stuff up, folks. Uh, of the United Nations. Yeah, they've got Saudi Arabia is now one of the countries that's part of the Commission for Women's Rights. You, know, you can't drive there and got to go in the full, got to wear the uh, abaya. Of, not not the total full beekeeper suit like the uh, burqa, but pretty close. I mean, and abaya is like the next, it just allows you to see some of the face. Anyway, uh, but yeah, the U- UN is trying to tell us how to do our healthcare system. I, I don't think we're going to listen to the United Nations on that one. I think there are, they they have some other priorities that 
I believe deserve more of their attention. They maybe should spend some time, I don't know, trying to figure out something worthwhile on a political solution for Syria, huge civil war with massive casualties. UN's got some other stuff they should focus on. We'll handle healthcare just fine here without their assistance. Um, hour three coming up. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. Team, we're very pleased to be joined by Matt Walsh on the line. He is an author at The Blaze and at the mattwalshblog.com. And he also has a uh, a book out right now. Matt, what's the book again? It's called The Unholy Trinity, Blocking the Left Assault on Life, Marriage, and Gender. The Unholy Trinity, everyone, available in fine bookstores everywhere and on Amazon. Uh, Matt, let's talk about your piece. On, well, first, I, I, I've been... I've been uh, having some fun with the the Bill Nye situation this week, and and I know you did too. Your piece is that uh, if he if Bill Nye is a scientist, so am I. I totally agree with you. Why is it that we have these marches that happen, March for Science, and all we get all these sanctimonious lectures from the left on science, and then the people they put forward as spokespersons for science, and in some cases as pseudo scientists, Al Gore, Bill Nye. Aren't, are, don't know what really very much about science at all. Yeah, it does. It feels like um, I, 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 it's just there's something so perfect about the fact that uh, that this is what kind of the millennial obsession with uh, nostalgia and, and our childhood. Like we can't get over our childhood, and and so now what we've done is we've taken Bill Nye, like this undead pop culture corpse, and we've we've brought him forward into modern times and turned him into this scientific uh, authority on apparently every subject because because well we know that he's, he's big on the environmental you know climate change thing and warning us that uh, like they told us that the new york city's supposed to already be underwater like two years ago and so he's telling us about that but but now with his new show i, I haven't really watched his show at all but with his new show he, he hits on a different supposedly scientific topic every every uh, day so he's a he's an expert on all scientific subjects and it really is uh, fascinating to watch I, I, I watched some of it. I, I talked about it yesterday on the program, the, the first episode on Netflix, and he has one of his course, he has this whole bunch of correspondence. You can tell that they're borrowing a lot from uh, some of this, the structural components of how they do the show from like The Daily Show and some of these other popular uh, leftist programs. Uh, but they make the claim at one point that, and this is, was near and dear to me because these are two things that are very important in my life, that the that there's going to be not enough cows because of global warming, and that will mean there's not enough milk, uh, and there won't be enough chocolate, and so we'll have milk and chocolate shortages. Does anyone believe this? Watching this Netflix program, you think? Do, do you think anyone's running out there saying I need to stock up on Hershey's now because this stuff is going to be like you know worth worth what diamonds are worth in a few years? Or I mean, I know that's an exaggeration, but I don't, I just don't think anyone believes this. So why do they watch it? Yeah, that that is. I hadn't heard that one. That's terrifying to me. <laughs> yeah, it's the first five minutes of the program. Yeah, now we're gonna run out of bacon next, I guess. And and on top of that, he also said, I think it was in the same the same episode. It might have been a different one. He also said that uh, that the world is becoming overpopulated. We might have to start taxing people who have too many kids. So we're gonna have so many people, not enough chocolate milk to go around. I don't know. I don't think it's it's clear to me that um, most people don't believe this stuff. Because, as you say, they're not reacting to it. And this is just the, the interesting thing about leftism 
Uh, you, you see it across the board that it, it obviously in many ways has won the culture in that it, if you look at the laws, policies, institutions, they appear to own the culture. But then when you look at other factors, it doesn't seem like anyone really believes this stuff or buys into it or wants to hear about it. So you see Bill Nye's show, and it just becomes a laughingstock. And then not to change subject, but you know, look at something like ESPN and how they're falling apart uh, because they go, they go crazy leftist. So it just – you wouldn't think it would work that way because we do live in a leftist liberal culture, but nobody – but I don't know. Nobody wants to hear about. It. No, nobody. I, I, I do want to talk to you about ESPN, by the way. That was where I wanted to go next. But but before we go there, I just wanted to 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 pose to you that you know I I don't pretend to be uh, a, a scientist. I don't have a science background other than what people learn in biology and chemistry and in high school. But I, I actually would like to learn more about it. And and one of the things that I find frustrating is that the 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 left in pop culture and and of course that with the politicization of everything now but in pop culture as well won't even go the route of okay here is an area of subject matter that is knowledge and expertise based let's just use it as an opportunity to teach people cool stuff i this i felt like an idiot matt because i turned on the bill nye show i'm like you know i've seen this guy on tv he acts like a jerk sometimes i know he's a mechanical engineer with not even with an advanced degree in it which if you're going to call yourself a scientist i think you should probably uh that that that's a worthwhile qualification to have but anyway and i'm thinking maybe i'll learn some cool stuff about microbiology you know say you know we'll we'll show you how the common cold is is transmitted or whatever it may be and no right away i'm getting a lecture about climate change we're going to run out of milk and chocolate Uh, three-year-olds can be transgender uh just go down the i mean you go down the list of all this stuff they don't care at all about teaching people yeah you find you find this combination of the fact that we live in kind of an idiocracy along with the fact that leftism is such a hyper it just it, it has this inclination this compulsion to politicize everything and when you, when you when you put those two things together then you'll end up with a science show that involves you know someone in a horse costume twerking about a you know while dancing to a song about about cross-dressing and homosexuality or whatever was going on there and that's that's what happens we, we, we've just done that dumbed everything down and i agree with you that it's unfortunate because to have a show where scientific ideas are broken down in layman's terms and made accessible to the average person, that would be kind of cool. And that was, I guess, from, I, I, from what I remember, that was basically what Bill Nye did in his kids' show. They were really simple scientific concepts, but he made them basically accessible to fifth graders. And that's why he became this thing that we all remember from our childhoods. But, yeah, but uh, see, that, that's a, but that's exactly the point, man. I, I was hoping for the adult Bill Nye right. show. And what I realize now is that to the left, the adult Bill Nye show is a constant lecture about climate change from somebody who has no background in climatology. That's that is what the adult Bill Nye show is in their minds. It's not actually like, hey, let's teach people the basics of science. But I, I want to ask you at ESPN as well, because I've seen both sides of this. I, I, I don't want to speak for you and I'm going to let you speak as much as you want about this. But um, I tend to take more your position, which is to try to extricate ESPN's clear progressive leftist uh, bias. Uh, it is rightly called MSNBC with sports, I think. Uh, but I don't watch that much ESPN, so I, I want to also be fair to that. I, I watch it here and there in, in, in uh, snippets. Some people seem to want to suggest that that has nothing to do with the recent uh, round of layoffs there, and clearly ESPN's in trouble. It used to be the most per subscriber, I believe. I think it was the most profitable cable channel because the cable companies for everyone listening gives a certain dollar amount per every subscriber. ESPN got the most money. 
uh, for that. Now it's having trouble. I think the politics has to play a role because I, I know I don't want to watch ESPN and get some lecture on gun control. Yeah, I think it's absurd that people are trying to separate the two. I don't know what yeah, I see even conservatives doing this. I don't know why they're doing it. I understand there are other factors involved, but this is one of the factors. Uh, I think when you when you, there's a reason why the, the, this announcement was made about layoffs, and you have people all over Twitter celebrating it. And I, you know, I don't really agree with necessarily celebrating that people are losing their jobs, uh, but they they did alienate and villainize and and and, uh, and demonstrate a real hatred for a large portion of the audience, and that's what happened. So. When, and if this had, by the way, if this had happened five years ago, six years ago, the reaction to the news would not at all be the same. People would just be, you know, be like, oh, that's too bad. So there's, it has become entirely associated with left-wing extremism. Of course that's going to hurt its, its, its business. I, here's the situation that I was in, and I know it's anecdotal, but I think there are a lot of people in the same boat as me. I used to watch ESPN all the time because I like sports, but especially during when it's not football season, I'm not, I'm not going to sit down and actually watch a full you know, a bunch of a bunch of basketball games during the regular season or, ba- or baseball games, but I want to know what's going on. So I watch just for the headlines, and a lot of the product I didn't, I wasn't really a big fan of. I think a lot of the analysis is is kind of stale and repetitive, but I would still watch it. Once they started in with the lectures on racial injustice and transgenderism and homosexuality, I said I cannot. Why would I? I can't justify watching it anymore. I just I can't stomach it. I don't want to hear this, especially from these meatheads, from these like former football jocks who are now talking about these social issues. I don't want to hear it. And I, and I just stopped tuning in and I used to tune in all the time. I don't tune in anymore at all anymore. What was it? Was it really common, Matt? Because I, I'll be honest, I would see ESPN usually when it was one of those egregious instances of like a political debate that's happening on ESPN and it would cross my radar and I would look other than that. I don't want, I used to watch the flagship show. Uh, what's a uh, sports center, but that was the only one that I watched. Was this, has this become a, a very regular thing now? It's not just, it happens here and there. So, you know, the politics of the channel, but it's in fact now like day in and day out. Is that where it is? I'm asking because I don't watch enough to know. I think it got to the point where it was happening very frequently, and there are certain shows, like news magazine-type shows, where it's only ever pretty much political stuff. But even in the sports center type of shows, uh, it happened frequently. And any time there was any kind of political or social issue going on that could be at all connected to, to, to sports, they would go all in on it. So, of course, during the Kaepernick thing, that was all they talked about. And we, no, I don't want to sit there and listen to that. For Who does? I don't want to sit there and listen to that for hours at a time. Or I don't want to listen to it for even 10 minutes. And I think that I'm probably a, a pretty good case study of a lot of the average uh, sports fans and, and former ESPN viewers. So I think to, to try to remove the, to try to separate those two things is, is it's not a coincidence that they went crazy leftist and now they're having layoffs. To try to make it a coincidence, I think, is, is a little absurd. Here, Matt and I are talking about two areas where I, I would like to believe there could be an absence of overt hardline politicization science and sports <laughs> and both of them are we're talking about on tv and in, in pop culture you'd think that well can't we all just learn about science and can't we all you know the, like the last re- i can't even say <laughs> i was gonna say at least we could watch like discovery and the nature channels and but that's not even true every time i watch a show uh i watched what is the planet earth recently which it's got some great footage and I, there's a lot of work they put into it uh and you've got attenborough i think is a narrator which is always fun uh, but you can't even watch a show about like snow leopards and uh, you know l- lizards escaping from snakes in the Galapagos Islands without at some point there being a little bit of like and if we don't change our ways through climate change we will all die and it's just like why can't I just watch the lions eat the eat the gazelles? 
Yeah, exactly. Everything goes, and I love that show too, except for that part. That everything goes political or it goes stupid. So that, I was just saying on Twitter that, you know, we know ESPN doesn't do sports, MTV doesn't do music, uh, Discovery Channel doesn't do science, History Channel doesn't do history, The Learning Chan- Channel doesn't do learning, National Geographic doesn't do geography, CNN doesn't do, doesn't do news. I mean, <laughs> it, we're, we're, no, no, you can't, I, I think the Cartoon Network still does cartoons. So I think at least there's that. Maybe we should all just watch that because at least they're honest in their title. But all the other, all these other uh, channels have completely abandoned their mission, and it's all it's all kind of merged into the into the center. So now we just have a lot of like reality TV type stuff and political stuff and stupid stuff. And for those of us who just want to sit down and watch sports or watch you know a show about monkeys or something, we we uh, we can't do that anymore. But it's been taken from us, and really is, it's really upsetting. Do you think that it's fair to? In, in the marketplace right now in media, do you think truth really sells? I think we can point to a lot of, and I know it's a very broad question, but I just wanted your take on it. You point to a lot of areas now where it seems like the uh, the goal of the programming is to try to find a way to reflect, and this, of course, ties in the politicization of everything, but to reflect back to the audience whatever their biases, political prejudices, preconceived notions, virtue signaling, whatever that may be, the programming tries to reflect that back to them because that's safe and comfortable and profitable. Do you think the truth is still uh, a, a business model that works? I think it's a bit, I, I do. I personally think it is a business model that works. I think most uh, companies don't try it. And, uh, I, and, and I also think on top of that, and to me, and I believe this to be the truth as well, that uh, you know, faith and, and, and religion, that also sells as well. And I think that's an, what I was saying before. It's an interesting dichotomy where we live in this liberal culture, but when you find these, you know, media companies or whatever, that when they go really liberal, and not just with ESPN, but look at even, you know, some of the networks, they'll, they'll come out with some show that's overtly gay. Like the e- ABC just had a miniseries about, about gay rights or whatever. Nobody watched it. Nobody wants to see it. You know, you do a show, Caitlyn Jenner, you do the show about transgenders. Nobody watches it. Nobody wants to see it. And, and yet, I think ESPN goes liberal. Nobody watches it. Nobody wants to see it. Uh, but on the other hand, History Channel comes out a few years ago with a, with a miniseries on the Bible, and it gets, it go, it's a smash hit. It gets crazy ratings. And so there is, there is a, an appetite and a hunger for and a market for religion, Christianity, truth. But on TV, there, there appears to not be much of a market for radical extremist liberalism, which is uh, – I'm not exactly sure why that is, considering we live in a liberal culture. But it is an interesting, an interesting thing. I think maybe part of the reason for that is that we, you know, many people in our culture, we have, we have acquiesced to liberalism. We accept it. We tolerate it. We comply with it. But we don't actually believe it. So, we, and we, so we're not in the mood to celebrate it. And so when you come out with some show that celebrates it, we don't want to see right. that. We're, we're just going to stay quiet and go along with it, but we, we're not going to celebrate it. Right. Your, your, your choice in entertainment is one of the last areas where you actually have some real freedom to choose in the culture. At least, you know, in the privacy of your own home, you can turn off the channel. Right. You, you can still do that, at least. Matt Walsh, everybody, author of The Unholy Trinity, available in fine bookstores and on Amazon.com right now. Also at TheBlaze.com, check out his latest and uh, the Matt Walsh blog. Matt, thank you so much, sir. Hey, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. We're going to talk North Korea shortly, and maybe we'll take a call or two. We'll be right back. Brent in New Mexico on the iHeart app. What's up, my friend? Hey, Buck. Shield tie, man. Shield tie. Hey, I just want to tell you, you were talking about the ESPN, and I just wanted to say, man, when when ESPN 
named Caitlyn Jenner uh, Woman of the Year in Sports Award, that's when I'd had enough. It had nothing to do with sports. I mean, there was there was a female collegiate athlete playing basketball that was playing through cancer, all kinds of stuff. And whenever they start pulling stuff like that, that's purely political. I had nothing to do with sports, and I haven't watched it since. And I'm, I hope they go under. I really do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I even forgot about that. I'm glad you you reminded me of that. Uh, also, in the interview, it was the first night of Tucker Carlson in the big chair on Fox News and for uh, O'Reilly. Uh, I, I have to say there's a part of me that was just uh, flabbergasted when she, uh, when, Kate, uh, when Caitlyn Jenner said that there's no advantage for transgender athletes, like male who become female competing against female. Uh, yeah, yeah, there is. <laughs> like that's, that's not up for discussion. And it, it can become dangerous. We saw this with um, the transgender MMA fighter who was annihilating all these female tra- MMA fighters. It's like, yeah, of course, of course he is. Yeah, they've got a high school track one that switched over. I read the news and Geiger, I don't know what you call him, but he, he's annihilating everybody. I mean, they can't keep up. Yeah, you, you would think that, that sports, I mean, forget about how sports has become so politicized. But it, it's one of the few places where there, there, it is possible to have a true meritocracy, right? You line everybody up, you, you, you fire the starter, pist- the starting pistol, and they all run, and whoever wins, wins, right? I mean, that, that's, but now the, even that is being uh, tainted. Even that is falling victim to social justice warriors' agendas. And, yeah, I, that, that, that was a, just a bizarre statement from— from Caitlyn Jenner, who, who does seem like a, a, a reasonable enough individual on other subjects. And uh, I, I, you know, changing the name and all that stuff. I mean, you know, live in a free country. But the athletic competition between male and female, this is just it's just radical. I mentioned before how it's Marxist in origins and it has to do with eliminating distinctions between the genders. It's really actually more angles if we want to talk about this. And maybe that's another I'm like jotting these down for subject matter to do more intensive uh, deep dives with with, uh, the, with the team on the show. Um, but, Brent, this is not a new idea, the elimination of gender in society. It's been around for, for a while. And um, I, on ESPN, I mean, you, you give a great example. You said there was a female athlete who, who ran while she was fighting, fighting through cancer, and then you got Caitlyn Jenner, who's just deciding to become uh, a transgender female, and that's man of the year, or I'm sorry, athlete of the year, whatever it is. What was it? it woman was of the. Oh, it was athlete. woman of the year. We're sorry. Woman, yeah. Pardon me. W- woman of the year. I was thinking athlete of the year. Um, but yeah, it's it's ESPN, man. It is what it is. But Brent, thank you very much for calling in and uh, and sharing that. I appreciate that. Uh, Shields high. Um, Carl in Indiana. Welcome to the Freedom Hunt, my friend. How you doing, Buck? Good. I uh, just wanted to follow up on uh, your comments yesterday about uh, radical Islamic terrorism. Uh, the article you wrote, thought it was superb, thought you hit the nail on the head. But uh, the underlying issue that I find amongst my Democrat friends and uh, just the overall uh, position of the party is they don't want to acknowledge that. They don't want to say radical Islamic terrorism because – at the core of it, they think Americans are too stupid to recognize the difference between good Muslims, bad Muslims, uh, one-off attacks versus, you know, they think if they were to speak those words, 
the rest of us will generalize and think all Muslims are bad. And, and that's the biggest problem I have with the Democratic Party is they they have to put the kid gloves on because they think Americans are too stupid. Carl, we're going to uh, hold you. Carl, we'll hold you through. we got to go into a break. We'll hold you through to let you finish your statement. We'll be right back, team. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. I am not entertained! The Buck is back. We're going to talk more about North Korea here in just a moment. I want to let Carl from Indiana finish up what he was saying. Carl, you were talking to us about radical Islam and whether or not Democrats will approve of people saying it. Yeah, uh, I just wanted to finish up, Buck. Um, it's it's the fatal conceit within that party is that experts should tell the rest of America how to live, what to think, and make policy. And and I think that's why you see a Trump victory and 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 so much angst amongst uh, the country in general because we're not quite as stupid as they would have you believe. Um, just because you say radical Islamic terrorism and look, I did a 12-month deployment with the infantry in Afghanistan. I met good Muslims. I, I placed my my life in the hands of Muslims. I know there are good Muslims. Me too. You don't. Uh, you're, you're not going to scare me by saying radical Islamic terrorism and Americans on the whole are not look we've all met people that you know uh, look like, look at the great. aftermath of the aftermath of 9/11 Carl uh, there was there weren't there weren't pogroms there weren't uh, purges there weren't large scale you know uh, lockups into camps or anything i mean you know th- that's not who we are as Americans that's not that's not how we do that's not how we do things it's not how we view our fellow human beings and but the media likes to pretend like that's always around every corner as an excuse for uh well as an excuse for of course downplaying the threat of radical islam and also not allowing us to speak honestly about it uh, carl thank you for your service and thank you for your patience and staying through and uh, uh shield time man i appreciate it uh let's talk about north korea this is what donald trump said earlier in the week this quote in north korea is also unacceptable and the council must be prepared to impose additional and stronger sanctions on North Korean nuclear and ballistic missile programs. This is a real threat to the world, whether we want to talk about it or not. North Korea is a big world problem, and it's a problem we have to finally solve. People have put blindfolds on for decades, and now it's time to solve the problem. Gordon Chang joins us now. He is the author of The Coming Collapse of China and a Forbes contributor. Uh, Gordon, uh, great to have you. Thank you for calling in. Thank you so much, Buck. So the uh, senators have a North Korea briefing that has happened, a U.S. senators for North Korea briefing. What What's going on? Before we get into the latest just with North Korea and all of the posturing and saber rattling, what's, what's this briefing all about? Well, the briefing was about the options that the United States has and, of course, the threats that we face. Now, this briefing could have been done on Capitol Hill, where they actually do have a skiff, a secured room. Um, I think there was a little bit of political theater going on here. And it's very much like the political theater on Monday, um, where you played that clip from, where President Trump invited ambassadors from the member nations on the Security Council um, to Washington to talk about this. Um, what Trump is doing, I believe, because uh, the, the meeting today in, in the White House compound was really unnecessary. Um, but what I think that he is doing is he is signaling to the North Koreans and to the Chinese 
that this is now at the top of his list. Um, there is no longer going to be the can kicking down the road. We don't care about North Korea. Let's think about something else attitude. And that's important because the United States has rarely put North Korea at the top of its list. And that's one of the reasons why the North Koreans have been able to make so much progress, because we really haven't cared very much about it. Well, in a Trump administration, guess what? That's changed. And we had uh, Admiral Harry uh, Harris of U.S. Pacific Command speaking to Congress about the North Korean missile threat. Here's what he had to say. North Korea has vigorously pursued an aggressive weapons test schedule with more than 60 ballistic missile events in recent years. With every test, Kim Jong-un moves closer to his stated goal of a preemptive nuclear strike capability against American cities, and he's not afraid to fail in public. As President Trump and Secretary Mattis have made clear, all options are on the table. We want to bring Kim Jong-un to his senses, not to his knees. And how do we do that, Gordon? Well, I think that, first of all, what the Trump administration did after the meeting with the Senate today is the right thing. We increased sanctions on North Korea. Um, more important, though, and this is uh, what uh, Senator Chris Van Hollen, uh, the Democrat of um, Maryland, said, is we need to consider sanctions on Chinese companies, especially Chinese banks, um, because if we do that, then we have the capability of pushing Beijing in better directions. They've got a fragile economy, Buck, um, and clearly they could not stand the United States unplugging Chinese financial institutions from their dollar accounts, which is what we can do. And in many cases, it's what we should do. Um, so I think that when we start imposing the sanctions, not only on the Chinese, but the North Koreans, we have the making of a solution. It's not going to be easy. Um, when you pursue misguided policies relentlessly for two decades, you're going to put the United States into a difficult position, which is where we are now. But there are solutions that are short of the use of force. What would it look like if China was willing to be as, and I, and I know this is unlikely to be the case, and unlikely is probably an understatement, but if China was willing to be as helpful as it possibly could be on North Korea, what would those steps from the Chinese side of things, in partnership with the U.S., trying to rein in uh, North Korea, what would those steps look like? Well, it would be a cutoff of trade. And I think that uh, if that were to occur— All trade? Everything? Yeah, everything, um, which is really where we're going, um, and that's where we would like the Chinese to go. Um, because at this point, um, I don't know if you can calibrate sanctions to bring them to their senses, not to their knees, which is a State Department formulation that Admiral Harris repeated today. I, I actually think that um, when, you, when you look at how— pivotal and important China is to North Korea. It's more than 90% of their external commerce. It's about 90% of their crude oil. It's exactly 100% of their aviation fuel. It's their, Beijing is uh, North Korea's primary diplomatic supporter in the Security Council and in other places. The North Korean regime just could not survive. Now, I don't think that there's anything that the United States and China could do to change Kim Jong-un's mind. But what we can do is we can change the minds of the 300 or so people who are the North Korean regime. And once you separate those people from Kim Jong-un, then he cannot maintain his ballistic missile and nuclear weapons program. So um, there are things that we can do because a lot of people in Pyongyang are there because they get rewarded and we can take those rewards away.
Uh, a, a caller earlier asked a, a, a pretty provocative question about North Korea, and I wanted to pose a version of it to you, Gordon. Um, if if Kim Jong Un, uh, you know, fell off the ladder trying to do some some uh, you know some chores one day and was no longer with us, who would be the most likely person to take over? Is there somebody who's already anointed for that role? Would there be a, a power struggle? Would would it necessarily be better if Kim was not the leader? You know, we don't know whether it'd be better or worse. There really is no designated successor because Kim Jong-un does not have an adult child. I mean, he's barely an adult himself. And so he has not been able to um, father um, the fourth generation Kim. So it would be a scramble among the military, among party officials, um, because this is a one-man system, when they fall apart, there are no rules. There are, uh, you know, you, it's just generally going to be the biggest free-for-all that we've seen in our lives, and it's going to be scary because they've got nukes, they've got chemical agents, they've got biological weapons, and um, you know, you got some pretty tough people in North Korea. So I think that it would not necessarily be better. Um, but then again, we don't get to choose what happens in North Korea. It's going to happen. What what kind of insight do we have into that that you know, that inner circle of sorts of the three hundred that you say comprise the real center of uh, of the uh, regime? It's it's really their version of like a central committee, right? So what do we know about them? Do we do we have much of a sense of uh, do they buy into a lot of this North Korean ideology and propaganda themselves, or are they just uh, benefiting from it and so they go along? I think that uh, essentially you've got a lot of transactional um, uh, interactions um, between those people and Kim Jong-un. I mean, they're terrified, of, uh, they're, they're coerced, uh, they're rewarded, um, but I don't really believe that they have that same loyalty that the regime did, for instance, in the era of Kim Il-sung, when people actually did believe that he was a god. So this is a very different situation than it was two generations ago. And so I, I, I think Kim Jong-un understands the problems. At the end of January and through the middle of February, we saw all of those instances of instability indicating that the regime was not stable. There was the um, demotion and the detention of the Minister of State Security, the execution of five of his senior subordinates, the assassination of Kim Jong-nam, the elder half-brother, and on the February 12th launch of the intermediate-range ballistic missile, the head of North Korea's strategic missile forces wasn't present, indicating real problems at the top of the North Korean military. We don't know exactly what the situation is in Pyongyang, but it doesn't look good. And that means Kim Jong-un probably has a pretty low threshold of risk and is willing to do things because they make sense in his context. They don't make sense in ours. Do you think that the regime, which is really Kim and, and those around him, that, that he can coerce or that maybe are true believers— uh, do you think that they see a future that does not uh, end in war with, with South Korea and perhaps some of South Korea's allies as well, which would include us? I think that they um, don't see a future where uh, there's a peaceful integration of the two Koreas because they have known, you know, when other regimes have fallen, that people have been brought up uh, war crimes trials. They they can see what's occurred in, in some of the African states that have fallen apart. Um, the retribution, the blood that we've actually even seen closer to home um, in, in some of the Southeast Asian states. So I, I don't think that they believe that there is going to be some sort of gradual integration between the two Koreas. Um, this is going to be tough for us because 
it's going to be more difficult, I think, to talk to them. Um, and also, you got to remember, Buck, when there is a fluid situation, we could very well see the Chinese military move south. There are reports, unconfirmed, but there are reports that there are mechanized Chinese units on the North Korean border. Those tanks are not used to protect China from peasants fleeing North Korea. They're there to go deep into North Korean territory to secure uh, weapons of mass destruction and to take the archives of North Korea because the Chinese don't want us to know about their relations with North Korea. They want that paper archive. So, you know, the South Koreans are not going to want to have the Chinese do that. They want to also secure uh, loose nukes, but they also don't want the Chinese to take over half of the Korean nation. So this is an inherently dangerous situation. Is it in our lifetime, Gordon? Could you foresee real, realistically a, a scramble between South Korea and China for control in the north after a fall within the regime? If the regime does implode for any number of reasons, the, the loss of Kim Jong-un would seem to be one of them. Could, could you see a scramble? Yeah, definitely we could see a scramble. And I think that that would be the most probable scenario. I'm not saying, Buck, that it's going to happen. But I am saying that we Americans need to broaden out the range of possible scenarios because a lot of horrific things can happen um, on the fall of the North Korean regime because it is an inherently unstable situation. There's so many reasons why this is dangerous, including the fact that you've got three big states, China, Russia, and the United States, that have a direct interest involved in the Korean Peninsula. And if you need history as a guide— Korea Peninsula is really where big powers meet and fight each other. Yeah, legacy of the Cold War. Uh, Gordon Chang, everybody, author of The Coming Collapse of China, Forbes contributor. Check out his latest on Forbes.com. Gordon, always a pleasure, sir. Great to have you. Thank you so much, Buck. Team, quick break, and then we are going to finish up strong here in the Freedom Hut. Oh, before I let you go, though, be sure to check out BuckSexton.com. We'll be right back. So Trump has ordered a review of federal lands that have been, well, land that has been taken over um, by the federal government. Uh, this is something that I say I, I find interesting when you, when you look at the previous, um, the previous administration and what it did. Well, well first here, l- let me play uh, Trump earlier today saying that they're going to put the states in charge of land that is, well, in the states. If, Today, I'm signing a new executive order to end another egregious abuse of federal power and to give that power back to the states and to the people where it belongs. The previous administration used a 100-year-old law known as the Antiquities Act to unilaterally put millions of acres of land and water under strict federal control, eliminating the ability of the people who actually live in those states to decide how best to use that land. Today, we are putting the states back in charge. It's a big thing. Seems reasonable to me. By the way, hat tip the Washington Free Beacon for this one. President Obama designated twice as many acres um, as federal land as Every president before him combined, 553 million acres were designated as federal land under 
the uh, Obama administration. That's that's a that's a lot of territory, isn't it? Uh, so now you have uh, the Trump administration saying that they're going to look at this and they might change some of this. Uh, they're going to revert this back to the states. Uh, you also have Trump ordering uh, Secretary of the Interior Zinke uh, to review presidential monument declarations over 100,000 acres. And they could decide to, quote, rescind, resize, or modify existing national monuments. Doesn't that seem fine? I mean, what is the problem? I saw there are some media outlets that were deciding that this was uh, controversial. So land that hadn't been designated as federal land for all the first, you know, a couple of hundred years of this country's existence. Well, okay, fine. Granted, it wasn't a lot of the land would have been outside of what was the country at the beginning. But you know what I'm saying? Land that hasn't hadn't been federal land for a very long time gets designated as federal land. It may and now might get undesignated, and that's supposed to be something that we all get uh, particularly uh, energized about. I, I just the media's ability to freak out about everything Trump does. I've realized the the, the reservoir for that is endless. It's never. It's they're never going to run out. It's never going to stop. Um, and whether it's on federal land designations or y- you name the issue. And I meant to, I'll try to remember tomorrow to look up the tweet about a New York Times reporter putting out there a statement by Trump. The more or less a statement was, I didn't read this thing that I'm signing because it's too big. And it was a joke, but it was treated out as though it was a serious statement. And then the joke that was treated as a serious statement by a New York Times reporter got like th- thousands and thousands and thousands of retweets. And the uh, the second thing that he wrote, which was, well, that was actually out of context. That was a joke. It was like a few dozen people. No, nobody cared about that one. That's a, that's a, It's a really good microcosm of what the media environment is today. By the way, I didn't talk much about the wall today. And, you know, the wall is and immigration issues are of high interest to me on a policy level and on a philosophical level as well. So tomorrow I am planning to uh, get into the wall in ways that you will not have uh, heard from anybody else, I think. Uh, So you can get uh, excited for that one, hopefully. Uh, Also, please do subscribe to the podcast of this show. You go to Buck Sexton with America Now on iTunes. Click subscribe. If you're ever out of radio range, you can listen on the iHeart app. Uh, Just type in Buck Sexton America Now there. And please do check out BuckSexton.com. We will be putting up some T-shirts and other fun things there in about a month, I think. That's when it will happen. But in the meantime, get acclimated with the site. Check it out. Put it in your browser. And uh, certainly tune in when you can for news of the day and analysis. All right, my friends. This is the Freedom Hut signing off for today. As always, Shields High.